Welcome everyone to another episode of the Bible Feed podcast. We're doing another overview of a biblical book, and it's the book of Numbers. And as in previous episodes, our aim is to fit into the overall biblical story and examine the structure of the book and identify some key themes and maybe a deep dive or two within the story and and find out what this book is all about. I've got Paul here with me, and together we're going to get hold of what the writers were trying to communicate in this fascinating book. And now we're looking at the book of Numbers, and of course, then therefore, Paul, surely this must be a book for mathematicians. (laughs) Yeah, there's something in the Bible for everyone, even for accountants, you might say. But yeah, with the title of the book of Numbers that we have in English, yeah, you might think this is for the mathematicians amongst us. Well, actually, the title of the book Numbers that we have in in English comes from the Vulgate, the Latin version from, I don't know, when was that? Fourth century or so. And this book was called Numeri in Latin, which means numbers. And in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, it was called Arithmoi, which is the equivalent word in Greek. And certainly there are numbers in it. The first few chapters, uh, there's a numbering of the people of Israel, but it's not really about the numbers. What's perhaps a more appropriate name for the book is what we have in the Hebrew, where it's, as is often the case with the books in the Hebrew Bible, it's the opening words of the book, which include the words Be-Midbar, which means in the wilderness. So it's more about this journey. It's a travelogue almost of this journey from Mount Sinai to the edge of the Promised Land. So that that title and that idea of the journey, that gives us a, a hook into where we are at in the story. And if you've been listening to this series, we've looked at overviews of Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus. And so now this is the fourth book in the sequence. So how does it fit in after those, obviously the Exodus in the beginning of this journey, and so we now find ourselves on the edge of the land, but how does the, the book as a whole sort of fit into the sequence? Yeah, so it's probably worth just just recapping what we've seen in those first few books of the Bible. We're at the fourth book, as you say. So the first book, Genesis, the first few chapters, 11 chapters or so, are very much about setting the stage. It's the the account of the origins of humanity, the universal origins of humanity is sort of designed to to make the point that wherever you are in the human family, you're part of this story. There's the Garden of Eden story right at the beginning, which is, you know, a garden, a fruitful place with trees and and water. And then there's this this dark separation between God and, and humanity. From chapter 12 onwards, it homes in on one particular family, the family of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God makes promises to these people, enters into a covenant with them, all trying to bring humans back to this sort of Eden situation. There are examples of the faith of these people, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, in particular in Genesis. But there's also failure and fracture of relationships with God and between family members. So we've had the grand introduction, we've had creation and the part that humanity plays in that interacting with God. But then as we get to the end of the book of Genesis, we're with the family of Jacob and Joseph Mm. and it's famine and everyone's down in in Egypt. So then what about the, the second book? Where are we when we begin Exodus? Yeah, so because of the family, they all move into Egypt, and then things take a turn for the worse for that that family in Egypt. They're in slavery, and the book of Exodus, the second book, is this dramatic account of escape of the Israelites, the ancient Israelites, from slavery. And it's the Ten Plagues, the crossing of the Red Sea. And then, slightly oddly, it goes into a detailed account of how to build a tent within which to worship God. And so this 
whole question starts to develop in the narrative about how is God going to stay with this people despite their repeated departures and rebellions from his ways? And, you know, is God going to go with them? Is he going to stay with them? And Exodus finishes with this tent that's built, the tabernacle, but it finishes with Moses is unable to enter the tent, and that's where it closes. Mm -hmm. Okay, and so then that takes us on to our, our third book in the Bible, Leviticus, and now into the detail of how Moses, how Aaron, how the priests can enter into the tent, what they wear, what they do. We're talking about the sacrifices, mm. that sort of thing. But that, of course, is not uh, is not done today. And as Christians, very little of that book is is enacted or adhered to. So why do we care about that? What's the importance of, of that book for us? That's a good question. And it helps us, I think, because we are so separated from that set of experiences in Leviticus and those kind of ceremonies and rituals, we have to think about well, what's underneath this, what are the messages underneath this. We start to see that it is perhaps helping us to develop an understanding and principles about what humans are in relation to God, what separates humans from God. There's all these barriers of you know, certain people can't enter this tent, can't even enter the court around it. And then there's only very few people that can enter the first chamber of the tent. And then there's only the high priest once a year that can, you know, there's all these barriers in, in approaching God. And it sort of drives home the point about separation. And there's all these rituals and whether it's the sacrifices or the feasts and festivals in the annual calendar. But actually, even with all of that detail described, it's pretty clear from other parts of the, the Old Testament. I'll just quote something from the Psalms, from Psalm 51, which is a little bit later, the time of King David. And so even with all those rituals, it's pretty clear that it's not those things per se that are important that God is looking for. And in Psalm 51, it's put quite succinctly, verse 16 and 17, for you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. So even in the context of all these laws and rituals, the understanding is still there that actually that it's not just the performance of those things that is, is important. It's this uh, humility, a contrite spirit recognizing the separation and the causes of it between between humans and and God. So Leviticus is is a lot about those underlying principles, and we can see that coming through in the uncleanness laws. The, you know what foods are clean, what foods are not clean, and right in the middle of this book, Leviticus, which is the middle book of the five books of the Torah, mm -hmm. we have the Day of Atonement, and we talked a little bit about that and how that actually illustrates through its procedures that salvation was was going to be achieved by something that was outside the law there was a particular sacrifice that that was burnt outside the camp and the priests were not able to partake of it okay. so that was an interesting point we got from unpromising material in <laughs> in leviticus or what may may appear unpromising and it's actually got some fascinating insights Okay, so we have the tent built then, and we have in Leviticus how to, what to do in it, who's who's running it, where they are, and what they're doing. And so that brings us to the end of Leviticus, the third book, and into the book of Numbers. What's that sort of transition like, I guess, end of Leviticus into the beginning of Numbers? How do those two link together? It's probably easier to think about how the end of Exodus 
leads into the beginning of Numbers, Okay, maybe. The tabernacle was built, the people of Israel are at Mount Sinai, and then you have the book Leviticus, which is this meditation in the form of a law code mm-hmm. on how God can be with his people and what his people should do to maintain that covenant faithfulness. But really, they're not going anywhere. As you read through Leviticus, the people aren't traveling anywhere. They're still at Sinai. And then we come into the book of Numbers, and right after all that, meditation on law and how God can be with the people, they're now ready to leave Sinai and move on. They're ready to travel. And Numbers gets us into that, back in the wilderness. That's the title of it. And so we're kind of back into the travel and the action, so to speak. Well, you say action there, but if you're listening at home and you think, well, I'll turn up at the book of Numbers and see how it begins. God is speaking to Moses in the wilderness right at the very beginning. But the first bit of action is, well, this census is counting the people and listing them. That's the big opening number, I suppose, <laughs> for the book of Numbers is this detail, numerical sort of action, I suppose. Not perhaps quite as gripping as the 10 plagues or something like that. <laughs> no. Okay. Fair point. When I say back into the action, not quite from chapter one, it takes a few chapters to get, get back into it. So at this point, it's probably worth worth getting into the structure of the book of numbers and essentially it's structured around three locations and periods of travel between them so the first 10 chapters they are actually still at sinai and then they leave and they travel and there's a couple of chapters about them traveling to a place called kadesh uh, which is actually right on the southern border of what would become the land that they would occupy something's happened there And then they are in what is called the Wilderness of Paran. So that's the second location, the Wilderness of Paran. Then there's another period of travel, and this time it's travel to Moab, which is on the east side of the River Jordan. So it's a bit further north. It's the country of Jordan today. So it's travel to that area, and then the rest is in the plains of Moab from chapter 22 through to the end of it, chapter 36. So it's the three locations, Sinai, Wilderness of Paran, and then the plains of Moab, and in between those, a few chapters about traveling between those locations. So those first 10 chapters that are still at Sinai before we get into any action, it's all about preparation for leaving Sinai. There's the counting of the people. Okay, how many people have we got that are going to move and travel from Sinai? How are we to be organized into tribes? And who are the chiefs of those tribes? And what about the Levites? They have a different role, so they do different things. This magnificent tent that's been created with all of its gold furniture and finery, how is that going to be deconstructed and carried? They have to clean the camp and they're taught about trumpet signals that they would hear when when it's time to move and the order of march and all of those kind of things. And actually, there's perhaps just a point of detail in this first section. In Numbers chapter 9, the beginning of the chapter, the Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness in the first month of the second year after they had come out of the land of Egypt, saying, let the people of Israel keep the Passover at its appointed time. So there's a a keeping of the Passover. You remember that was the feast, that was the event that marked their escape from Egypt. So they've escaped from Egypt, travelled to Mount Sinai, there's been all this tent building and law giving. They've been there for a year, uh, effectively, because now we've got to the anniversary of their escape from Egypt and they keep the Passover for the second time, now they're ready to move on.
crypto. There's obviously a lot of stuff involved in getting a, a big group of people together. They've got the laws and the responsibilities, the duties they've been given. They've also got the Passover feast to remember where they've come from. But it is a lot of detail on what is preparing to leave one area. Why do we have this amount of detail for, yeah. for these kind of why do we have Why do we have 10 chapters of that sort of information? So everyone knows exactly where they should stand in the right. order of the march and yeah. what they should be carrying and, and and who does what so and it, it does seem odd and i suppose when something seems odd when we're reading our bibles it should make us think okay what are we being told here what's this here to to help us think about and we have seen that sort of pattern before where there is extensive description of the way god has provided for the people They've got everything they need. We saw it in Exodus with, you know, they get the manna and so on. And they have everything they need. And then the narrative carries on and you move into, okay, well, what do they do? How do the people respond to having everything that is kind of laid out for them and everything they need? And in Numbers chapter 11, there's all this preparation. Everyone knows what they should be doing. The trumpets blow and they leave. They set out on their march and chapter 11 and the people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. And there was a rabble among them that had a strong craving and they want, and they want meat to eat. And they say, we remember the fish that we ate in Egypt that cost nothing. They seem to have forgotten they were slaves. We remember the fish that we ate in Egypt that cost nothing. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, the garlic. Now our strength is dried up and there's nothing at all but this manna to look at. And the next chapter gets even worse because chapter 12 and verse 1, Miriam and Aaron, who are the brother and sister of Moses, spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman that he had married. And they said, has the Lord spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? And so they challenge the authority of of, of Moses. So we're seeing a pattern, I think, repeating that we've seen before. Yes. As you say, we've seen a number of these things as we've been reading through uh, Exodus. Out of Egypt, you have God coming in to provide the food, the water. Moses is provided for the people, as it were, to lead them. Mm. And then there's leadership structure around him. There's the 70 elders. But then there's still the problems that come after that. The golden calf episode being well, the, the lowest point. And similarly, we have Aaron's role in the creation of mm. the golden calf and the instigation of that episode. Now repeating here, it's Aaron and Miriam posing Moses in front of the people. But again, to sort of go back, we've jumped two books back to Exodus, but you could jump back further again, couldn't you, to Genesis and see this is ultimately the Eden story being repeated. Again, God provides a garden, it's got food, it's got safety, it's got organization and structure, and yet the humans, Adam and Eve, going their own way, which involves leaving behind the instruction and the direction that God has provided. So yes, what we saw in Exodus was what we were seeing in Genesis yeah. before as well. Yeah, so I think, why do we have 10 chapters of detail? I, I think it is, it's reinforcing and, and building us up to see the same pattern emerge again that, as you say, we've seen in Exodus and the sort of prototype in Genesis, definite parallels there. And, and actually, we, we did mention, I think, when we talked about Leviticus, that that's the middle book of the five books of the Torah. And Lawrence, who was leading our discussion on that, observed that, well, maybe there's a parallel the outside of that structure with Genesis and Deuteronomy. And so you might expect to see a parallel between Exodus and Numbers, the book number two and book number four. Mm -hmm. And maybe that's what we're seeing in this. You've got Exodus. People are provided with everything, and then they have 
the golden calf incident. Yeah. Numbers, they're provided with everything for their travels. And then there's the complaining. So maybe it's su- supporting a little bit of that, right, okay. that structure of the Torah as a whole mm-hmm. uh, as well. Yeah, and how, how certain parts will mirror one another. Speaking of, of mirroring one another, and you know, lest we seem to be needlessly critical of the complaints that are going on, I can certainly remember complaining when being taken on walks and hikes and things like that, how we'd left the comfort of a hotel behind and the food in such and such a place or at such and such a person's mm-hmm. house. And I could think back on the cucumbers and melons, the leeks and the, <laughs> the garlic of home is it is, is such a, a natural complaint. And you can you can so imagine it because you can imagine yourself saying those those exact words. That's one thing that pops out. And the, the incredible challenge that Miriam Aaron and ultimately Moses face in cajoling and directing and guiding mm. and motivating and responding to these complaints in incredibly challenging wilderness circumstances. Mm. So, okay, we're in chapters 11, 12. Where does the narrative go from here? Does it get better? Do we turn a corner when we're over the hill? Unfortunately not. These complaints and oppositions and challenges to the authority of Moses as leader are in the section, the couple of chapters, while they're traveling to this place called Kadesh. Right. And when they get there, this is the edge of the land, we have what is effectively the numbers equivalent of the golden calf episode in Exodus. this This is now the golden calf moment in numbers. Because in chapters 13 and 14, they send spies into the land, They send 12, a representative from each of the 12 tribes. They send them into the land to see see how it is and what what will be involved in entering and settling in this land. And 10 of those spies bring back a report saying, yeah, it's a wonderful land, fruitful and, and so on. But there are people there, strong cities, towns, walled uh, settlements that we'll never be able to to conquer. We'll never be able to to go in there and settle there. But two out of the 12 say that, yes, those challenges are there, but God is with us and we'll be able to take it. And essentially, the 10 carry the day and the people say, we're having none of this. We're not going in there if we're just going to be defeated and suffer. And so in, in Numbers chapter 14, there is this moment which really echoes the golden calf moment with Moses interceding for the people. So the people are saying, no, we're not We're not going in. And Numbers 14 verse 11, the Lord said to Moses, how long will this people despise me? How long will they not believe in me? In spite of all the signs that I have done among them, I will strike them with pestilence and disinherit them. I will make of you a, greater, a nation greater and mightier than they. So it's the same kind of situation that, that was described in, in Exodus when mm-hmm. the golden calf. And then Moses, verse 13, said to the Lord, then the Egyptians will hear of it and you brought the people out in your might from among them, and they will say that God was not able to bring them to their destination. So Moses intercedes. And as a result, verse 20, the Lord said, I have pardoned as a result of Moses' intercession, according to your word, but truly as I live, as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, none of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness, and yet have put me to the test these 10 times and have not obeyed my voice, shall see the land that I swore to give to their fathers. So the generation, if you like, that have come out of Egypt will not be the one that goes into the land of promise. They will wander for 40 years, it turns out. 
Mm-hmm. It's amazing, isn't it? Earlier on, they've, after hearing these reports, said, well, let's get a new captain, let's pick someone, and let's go back to Egypt. We don't want to enter the land, now that we've heard this report. And in a way, they get their wish. They don't have to enter the land. They aren't taken back to Egypt. They're not going back into slavery. They're, they're still God's people. But instead, we begin this 40 years wandering, and this new generation has to uh, has to come about. Okay, so we begin this uh this sort of holding period before the nation can go into the mm. into the land. But as I look now, we've had a lot of action. We're back here into various different laws about offerings and more Leviticus type language, at least about sacrifice and things like that. So what's happening with that? Why do we have that at this section as the as the forty years wandering begin? Yeah, it does. It almost seems as though as the the narrative kind of descends into this terrible place where there is m- more fracture in the relationship between the people and god it's almost though the writer sort of retreats into into a comfort zone which is let's write some more laws yes the wheels are falling <laughs> off this israel yeah. project yeah. people are trying to vote to get out yeah. this is where this is what's going to keep yeah. us together yeah it's all got too much yeah. i'll go back to the law uh-huh. books and write out some more laws so there's laws about sacrifices in chapter 15 and then chapter 16 there's another rebellion led by uh, this guy called Korah, a couple of associates dathan and, and abiram so they they challenge the authority of moses and, and aaron and mm-hmm. it's a terrible incident where the families of Korah and anyone associated with them end up being killed and then we go into chapter 17, sorry, chapter 18, back to the law books again, duties of priests and, and Levites. And one suggestion I've heard is that it, it's almost, okay, things are going wrong. How are we going to fix that? Let's add some more laws. Things go wrong again, despite those more laws. And let's add some more laws. Mm-hmm. And the pattern of the narrative is maybe just illustrating that the solution is, isn't more regulation, if you like, isn't, you know, more laws, that isn't going to solve the problem of the human behavior and rebellion Mm. against God. You've also got the the clock begins to tick on the on the forty years, and that generation has to has to pass away before the new one comes along. So, what else do we know about the forty years period after we have those laws and ordinances given out? Yeah, so there's, there's a long period there, but there's there's very little in this in this narrative about mm-hmm. the forty years at, at, at this stage, at least. So we've got to chapter eighteen, mm-hmm. and then I think nineteen and twenty, or chapter. 20, we are starting to get towards the end of that 40 years, and the people are traveling to this region of Moab on the east side of the River Jordan. But we're, we're starting to see that generation that came out of Egypt dying off, dying away. So in, in chapter 20, Miriam dies, that's the sister of Moses. And later on in the chapter, Aaron dies as well. We have the incident where Moses strikes the rock twice to bring water for the people and so Moses we're told is not going to enter the land so it's it's starting to make the way for the next generation we're getting towards the end of the 40 years they're traveling up that east side of what is the Dead Sea now Mm -hmm. and the River Jordan east of the river they overcome some opponents that attack them on the way up there and their reputation is starting to spread that there's this people approaching the land of, of promise
So, okay, so there's this big group. They've got this portable temple tabernacle. They've got all their provisions, all their goods, all their flocks, all the families laid out in the order that's, that's sort of designed and given uh, in the book. And so I suppose this number means that they could appear challenging and imposing. You know, they've survived for this long against all these odds and are now coming up to the border, possibly looking to uh, conquer these established peoples who have who have been there and we get towards the end of this book not the reaction of, of Israel but instead from the opposite perspective because you have this what would be neighbouring Moabite king Balak who sees this group coming towards him mm. and thinks well I, I'm not going to send out an army instead I'm going to try something else I'm going to hire sort of a hired gun a prophet for hire this man Balaam and he's going to curse these people and, mm. and drive them away or, or scatter them or whatever it might be. So yes, this is a, a very new development. Now suddenly Numbers says, okay, well, what does this look like to someone on the outside? Mm. It looks very threatening and, and this is what they're going to do to deal with it. Yeah. And we have five chapters, I think, on, on this, um, yeah. focusing on this particular sequence of events with King Balak of Moab <clears throat> and this prophet that he's hired, Balaam. So chapters 22 to 26 are all about about that. And he's a false prophet. You know, he seems to have some connection with, with Yahweh, the God of Israel. He's described in those terms, a bit mysterious, uh, and he's hired to, to curse Israel. And three times he tries to do that and ends up instead, when he's, when he's trying to curse Israel, he ends up speaking a, a blessing on Israel. But the intriguing thing is that while this is happening, he's on a mountain or a clifftop overlooking the encampment of, of Israel. The people of Israel down in the valley are completely unaware of of this going on. Mm -hmm. And yet there is this behind the scenes, unseen by Israel, God protecting and preserving them. But when we come to look at the content of what Balaam says and uh, what he's recorded as saying, particularly in that third blessing, it's pretty remarkable. We'll look at that in a moment, actually. Okay, so we have this enigmatic sort of Balaam figure hired, and he tries to curse, but all that comes out are these blessings. Okay, so we'll look at that in a bit of detail. Mm. After this section, which, as you say, people down on the ground have no idea is going on, there's no interaction between this false prophet and the people, then at the end, so I'm looking at all the way down to chapter 26 now, we have another census, another numbering of mm. the, the people. So a yeah. great period of time has gone on. But the results, the numbers, are very similar to what we actually saw in the opening census. The actual census itself mm. isn't drastically different in terms of numbers. The count is of 600,000 men. And so what are we... to to make of that because if you think well it's 600,000 men probably say 600,000 women as well then you've got some children maybe say mm -hmm. half that 300,000 plus a few here and there in terms of ages very old very young all that kind of thing so that, that's two million people roughly give or take is that is that right is that what we think would have been there yeah, that, this is one of those things that leaves you scratching your head a bit as to what, what's going on here, because that is an awful lot of people, two million people with all the flocks and herds and so on. That's a lot for um, Moses to manage, certainly. It certainly is. But I think before we get into that, the the overall point you, you sort of alluded to there is that when the census was taken at the beginning, effectively at the beginning of that 40 years, and now at the end of the 40 years, with a a replacement of one generation with another, mm. the overall message that we're getting here is it's pretty much about the same number of people, just over 600,000 men. Mm -hmm. And so the number at the end is the same pretty much as the number at the beginning. There's some differences between the individual tribes, right? but they sort of provide brackets to the narrative of this period. It's telling us, in fact, the heading in my Bible is um, 
census of the new generation. Right. The point is the generation that left Egypt have been replaced. You know, the numbers haven't diminished. The, mm-hmm. the new generation has been preserved, brought through the wilderness. And, okay, some variation in the tribes, but God has brought the new generation through to replace the old one and to the borders of the land. That's kind of the overarching point. What about the actual numbers? You know, yes, it could be that they're accurate. That's one way of reading them, that it's 600,000, it's 2 million people, roughly. There are some issues that that raises, that that some challenges in that, in amongst those numbers, we're told there were just over 22,000 firstborns. If that's the case, then each mother in Israel is having about 60 children, which is quite something. And and there's a little comment, we haven't got to Deuteronomy yet, but there's a little comment in Deuteronomy chapter 7, just before they go into the land of there being seven nations in the land that are more numerous than the people of Israel. And so if that's the case, seven times two million is 14 million. There's 14 million people in the land before that Israel they are about to go arrived. into. And that, I think, is more than the population of, of the land of Israel today, you know, with modern farming and sustenance and so on. Sure. So... That raises a question, is is it really that number? From the text, I don't think we really get a clear alternative way of reading those numbers. Some have suggested that when we have the numbers in, in thousands, that the word for thousand is a word that is used in different contexts of a, a team of, of oxen or a squad of men. Okay. And maybe it's not a thousand, it's, it's like a team a squad, almost like a military term of you know right. 10 or a dozen or something. And then people have used that to estimate that maybe the numbers were sort of more like 100 to 150,000. Mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't know. However we read and understand and want to read and, and understand those numbers as they are or, or as something else, the main point is clear. And it's not really about the actual numbers. It's about God's preservation and protection of mm-hmm. the people that he has covenanted himself to despite their stroppiness along the way, and that he's continued to be with that people, both openly and in hidden ways, as we saw with this Balaam character. And he's staying true to his promise to the fathers that you know they would become um, as a, a people that are as the stars for multitude and through whom all nations would, would be blessed. Right. Okay, so at, at this stage then, we've had the, the second census, so we haven't, we haven't lost out in terms of numbers as we've been going through in the wilderness journeys. We've still got Moses leading us. We've got a new generation, newly energized and invigorated to, uh, to take the land. We're right, we're right there. We're, we're strong enough that we're causing the other people to, to worry. So are we at the end now? Are we, are we ready to go into the land? Yeah, and it seemed, you know, like any good journey with the kids in the back of the car. Mm-hmm. Oh, are we nearly there yet? Have we, have we got to the end? I guess we're, we're pretty much nearly there. We're up to chapter 26, and we have some chapters at the end, chapters 27 to the end, chapter mm-hmm. 36, that are a mixture of things, but they're mostly about arrangements for when they go into the land and how the land would be divided up and different families would have different inheritance and how that would work, how some cities, some towns would have a role as what's called cities of refuge, which was part of the legal arrangements in Israel. So, you know, it's just kind of showing when they do eventually go into the land, there'll be no change in God's steadfastness and being with them. Perhaps just one thing to, to point out in this final section in Numbers chapter 33 mm-hmm. That chapter is devoted to a list of the places that they went to during these 40 years. You know, there was none of that in the narrative itself, uh, as we we were going through, through. as as, as we said. But here in 
Numbers chapter 33, there's, uh, there's a list of the places that they went to, and there's about 40 of them, 40 different places that they camped uh, over the 40 years. But the fascinating thing is that uh, no one really knows where any of them are. So there's, there's this account of, okay, we, we camped at this place for a time, and then we moved to this place, and but nobody knows where these places are. And, you know, and I guess... With some of these things, it's a bit of a lesson in how do we read these these narratives and mm-hmm. and try to see what the point is that's, uh, that's being communicated. And it's not necessarily about, okay, let's go hunting through old maps and, and things and try and find where these places are. That's not the point. The, I think the point is God knew where they were. You know, we, we don't know where the, any of these places are. But here we have a list of them, and and perhaps the point is the message is through this wilderness, which is a little bit analogous to you know the lives of Christians in life now. We may not know where we are or where we're heading, but God knows exactly where we are and and where we're heading and where we're going to end up. Um, so we're now, yeah, we're now at the end of the Book of Numbers. We've we've got there, and they're ready, as you say. To, to enter the land excellent okay so we've we've arrived there we've had our our overview and at the many twists and turns and stops and locations on the way god has been intimately aware of where israel and the people are the two censuses confirm that they haven't lost out on on numbers they are whole and complete and ready to go into the land um Okay, so that's our overview. Paul, you said you were going to come back to maybe a couple things that we, we, we looked at in brief earlier. Are there any points you'd want to highlight for the listeners to look out for as they read through the book of Numbers? Yeah, just a couple of points. That, and this, I suppose, just illustrates that even though we've been looking at the broad sweep of this and making points about the mirroring of Exodus with Numbers at a high level, really, mm-hmm. when you get into some of the detail there are some fascinating things as well we commented as we were going through that when things are going wrong it seems as though the the response of the writer is to write out some more laws about various things and, and one of those chapters is numbers 19 and it has a description of, of bringing a red heifer a female calf and that it's to be sacrificed and in a certain way and like that offering on the day of atonement it's to be burned outside the camp and then the ashes okay. are to be used in a purific ritual. Not not going to particularly comment on, on that, but it's specifically referred to by the writer to the Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 9. Do you want me to read so that just, out? Yeah, just a couple of verses there, verses 13 and 14. Sure. For if the blood of goats and bulls with the sprinkling of the ashes of a heifer sanctifies those who have been defiled so that their flesh is purified... How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to worship the living God? Yeah, so there's a, a fascinating comparison there between specifically calling out that ashes mm-hmm. of the heifer, which is taken from Numbers 19, and comparing, contrasting it with the sacrifice of, of Jesus. And saying, as we were highlighting, that these offerings, particularly where they're burned outside the camp, show that the law is not the thing that saves the rituals are not the things that save there's going to be something else that comes and here it's clearly jesus and the and the the effect of the sacrifice of jesus upon us is is not just a sort of ritual purification mm-hmm. it's a deeper thing it gets into our conscience it gets into our heart and and changes us and the way we think and the way we feel mm-hmm. about things so there's that little incident there with with the heifer just gets picked up in the new testament 
Yeah, that's interesting. Those links the writer to the Hebrews draws out to compare and contrast those two. Is there a, another point of detail that you'd like us to uh, focus on? Yeah, the point that I said I would come back to, which mm. is the speeches of the uh, the false prophet Balaam, and in particular the, the last one, which is in Numbers chapter 24. And there's just one verse, I think, that's worth mm-hmm. just highlighting in this in this speech of Balaam. He says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Seth. So it's just one verse, but it's using language about someone mm-hmm. coming out of Jacob, out of Israel, that would, would fulfill a royal role, the star, a scepter. And, and would crush the forehead of, of an enemy. And that is setting off bells ringing across our, you know, thinking about other parts of the scripture, and in particular, going back to Genesis, Garden of Eden, mm-hmm. the crushing of the head of the serpent. And it's just remarkable that here in this, again, apparently unpromising kind of material, you have mm-hmm. there something that appears to be pointing us forward to Jesus and the role that he would fulfill. Yes, it's incredible. Isn't it? Looking backwards and looking forwards, yeah, wrapped up into one. If As we bring this to a close, please, if you haven't, go back and listen to the episodes that we've recorded on Genesis, Exodus and Leviticus so far to make even more sense of the book of Numbers to, <laughs> to get you up to speed on those. And of course, listen out for future episodes that we've got coming up as well. Paul, have you got anything else to add before we uh, we bring this this episode to a close? Oh, I think I've said enough about numbers. I don't think we've really done anything else in our in our back catalog that that particularly links to numbers, but we will finish off the the five books of the Torah and in a few weeks all being well do an episode on Deuteronomy. And we'll have that as a complete set. So thank you very much, Paul, for your thoughts and what you've prepared for us in this episode. Thank you for listening. Please look us up at uh, thebiblefeed.org and follow us on whatever podcast service it is that you that you subscribe to. You can find our page on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And of course, we are recording this at the end of March, which means Easter is coming. And so the next episode that we're going to be releasing poses that, that timely question, why did Jesus have to die? So look out for that episode coming soon. Thanks again. Mm-hmm.